I'm happy today to be speaking with Carlo Broussard, who is a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers. He travels around the country giving talks on apologetics, biblical studies, theology, and philosophy as a regular guest on the radio program Catholic Answers Live, and is the author of Prepare the Way, Overcoming Obstacles to God, the Gospel, and the Church. And so today I'm happy to speak with him about meeting the Protestant challenge, how to answer 50 biblical questions to Catholic beliefs, uh, published by Catholic Answers Press. So welcome to How They Love Mary, Carlo. Hey, Father, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is my new book, Hot Off the Press, here. So you're one of the first interviews for the uh, book, Hot Off the Press, man. Well, that's great. And, uh, you know, so you're an apologist, and maybe for some people they don't necessarily know what that might mean. And so how would you describe your work as an apologist? Yes. So it's basically, you know, coming, we we go around apologizing for the Catholic faith, giving an apology. (laughs) But of course, we're not using that term in the modern sense exactly. Uh, We're using it in the classical sense. The term apology comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give an intellectual answer or a defense for one's position of belief. And this is actually a Greek word that St. Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.15 when he writes, always be ready to give an apologian to anyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. So it's basically giving intellectual answers to questions that are asked about our faith, but in particular giving intellectual defenses to show the reasons of why we should believe in Jesus and the church that he have founded, or if we're talking to atheists, why we should think that God exists, and giving intellectual reasons for these beliefs. And that's basically what apologetics is. So you can be an apologist for anything. You've been an atheistic apologist, an apologist for atheism, an apologist for Islam, an apologist for Protestant Christianity, on down the line. And so obviously if you're going around defending the faith and giving a reason for the the why we believe what we do obviously you must have studied theology and and, and things like that so just wondering maybe where's your background from where did you study and how did you get into the line of work yeah well i was initially attracted to apologetics and was introduced to apologetics which gave rise to the attraction and the desire to do it uh, by my boss here at catholic answers my colleague uh, tim staples story when I was about 17 and a half, 18, somewhere around there. And for the first time, I was introduced to this thing called apologetics and giving a defense of our Catholic faith. And that lit a fire within my heart for to pursue apologetics. So I started studying theology informally and studying apologetics, you know, all the tape sets and books and all that fun stuff. And then I decided to give up uh, the music career that I was pursuing in southern Louisiana in order to pursue theology and philosophy. So I started my formal training I eventually ended, uh, received my undergraduate degree in theology from Catholic Distance University. There's a few stops at different colleges on the way. And then I got my graduate degree, my master's in theology, with the Augustine Institute. And then recently I completed my master's in philosophy with Holy Apostles in uh, college and seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. So both informal and formal training. And so here I am at Catholic Cancer of the right fulfilling that initial dream that started when I was 18 to, to be a full-time apologist. 
So as you defend the Catholic faith and you've written these 50 questions, uh, you answer 50 biblical questions to Catholic beliefs and meeting the Protestant challenge, what's probably right. the most common objection to the Catholic faith that you encounter in your work? Yeah, well, the topic, you know, Father, the topic that you wanted to talk about today concerning Mary uh, these challenges pro concerning with regard to Mary are probably the most common. As any convert will tell you, Mary's always sort of the greatest hurdle to get over, right? And embracing the truth of Catholicism. And the type of challenge, uh, it's important to point out, Father, that the type of challenge that I'm addressing in my new book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, is a little bit different than the challenge that's been focused of the modern apologetics movement started in the late 80s by our founder here, Carl Keating. And that old challenge was, where's that in the Bible, right? And that's still a challenge that's valid today. But what's interesting about that challenge, Father, is that that's not a challenge that a Catholic is required to meet because it operates on the principle of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our infallible rule of faith. And a, pro and a Catholic could simply respond to that question and say, well, I don't have to appeal to sacred scripture in order to derive certainty about God's revelation alone, I have sacred tradition and have the teaching of the church, right? So a Catholic can sort of parry that challenge and bypass that older challenge. But the challenge I'm addressing in my book, Father, is how can the church teach X when the Bible says Y? And that's a bit of a different challenge because this challenge, it claims that a particular Catholic belief and that's a challenge we have to meet, because if we believe anything as Catholics, at least it can't contradict God's Word, right? Because we hold to sacred scripture as the inspired Word of God. And so what my book is, I go through these 50 different challenges and show how our Catholic beliefs cohere and can harmonize with certain biblical passages that our Protestant friends see as contradicting our Catholic beliefs. And of course, we'll uh, cover some of those concerning Mary, I think, if you want to talk about that in this uh, podcast here. Sure. And let's move to the Blessed Mother, because she is one that uh, a lot of people, a lot of converts, as you mentioned, do struggle with. Sometimes the Marian devotion or piety that we have. And, you know, we probably all have met someone like this, that, that they're so overly devoted to Mary that you might even wonder if they've forgotten about Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> right, right. And so that can be a big turnoff or, you know, all of these people going to shrines. And, and I love Marian shrines, but maybe for the outsider, as they see that, they're like, well, that's Mariolatry. They're going to adore Mary at her shrine right. uh, because maybe they right. don't understand the concept, for example, of intercession. So how, how can we best articulate uh, Marian intercession? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question, and I suppose one of the challenges, the challenge that would be most appropriate in the book that would relate to that would be in this in the section on the saints, where I deal with the biblical challenge of you know how can we as Catholic, how can the Catholic Church teach that asking the saints to intercede for us is appropriate and good when the Bible says in First Timothy two five there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So it would seem that our practice of requesting the saints' intercession contradicts that Bible passage, and in particular here in our conversation with regard to Mary. But of course, 
out and follow the logic of that challenge, then we're going to have to deny all forms of Christian intercession whatsoever, including your intercession for me. For if I need, for if going to another Christian for prayer and making a prayer request to another Christian in some way takes away from the unique mediation of Jesus, well, then I can't ask you, Father, or any other Christian on this earth to pray for me. So if that's absurd, if we follow that logic to its absurd conclusion, we can see that us asking the saints, and in particular Mary, to pray for us in no way takes away from the unique mediation of Jesus, precisely because they are Christians, right? They are perfected members of the mystical body of Christ, and by virtue of their membership in the mystical body of Christ, they can intercede for us, and it in no way usurp or take away from the unique mediation of Jesus. Now, that's one challenge, that's one way I articulate that in my book, but here's perhaps another way in which we can articulate this, Father, and this comes from the chapter in my book where I deal with the challenge about calling Mary Queen of Heaven. Some Protestants uh, make a big deal about that and say, well, how can you say Mary's Queen of Heaven? Because the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, 7 through 18 condemns a queen of heaven, a goddess that's referred to as a queen, the queen of heaven. So, first of all, the way we can meet that challenge in order to get over that obstacle is to simply say Jeremiah is condemning the worship of a goddess that they called queen of heaven. That's what he's condemning. He's not condemning calling someone queen of heaven. He's condemning the worship of this goddess, and scholars are uh, don't really know exactly which particular goddess Jeremiah is referring to, but that uh, he's condemning their worship of a goddess is clear. And just because there's a false queen of heaven, right, doesn't follow from that that we can't use that terminology. If we were to follow that logic, we couldn't call Jesus son of God because in pagan mythology there were sons of deities. We couldn't call the Bible a holy book because in other pagan religions they have holy writings as well, right? So just because you have a counterfeit queen of heaven. It doesn't follow that you can't have a real queen of heaven. And I think this, Father, ties in nicely to the issue brought up. you brought up concerning our request of Mary praying for us. And what I point out in my book, Father, is I give evidence that Mary is the queen of heaven and earth in as much as she is the queen of the Davidic King Jesus. In as much as she is mother of King Jesus, she is queen alluding back to the Old Testament role of the Gebirah, the great lady, the queen mother. But because she is queen father, she has an intercessory role, because the role of the queen mother was one of intercession. As Mary is our queen mother, she has a unique place of intercession within the mystical body of Christ. And because of that, we as sons, spiritual sons and daughters of this heavenly queen mother we come to her and make our request known to her to pray for us on our behalf to King Jesus. When a person is coming into the Catholic faith, the intercession that we just talked about is one of their obstacles. And now we're able to better understand it, especially because of Mary as the queen mother, as the advocate, the intercessor for the people. Right. But then there are other hurdles that they have to overcome. So That's right. Uh, so we celebrate our Marian dogmas. We have four Marian dogmas. Three of them are commemorated by liturgical feast days, uh, one of them being the patroness of the United States of America, the Immaculate Conception, which we believe right. and put out that 
Mary was conceived without the taint of original sin, that she didn't suffer the punishment of original sin, that God foresaw the merits of the cross and applied them to his mother Mary at that very moment. And so, of course, uh, I think very popularly, Protestants might quote to us St. Paul, who says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, how is Mary exempt from uh, falling short of the glory of God? Yeah, well, first of all, it's important to point out that one of the ways to meet this challenge, as I articulate in my book, is that the use of the word all in Scripture doesn't preclude exceptions necessarily, right? So, for example, in Matthew 2, 3, we read that all Jerusalem, along with Herod, was troubled when they heard of the wise men from the east speak of the birth of the king of the Jews. Well, almost certainly this doesn't mean that every single person in Jerusalem, without exception, was troubled, right? I'm sure there were some people who didn't even know about it. Or in Matthew 3, 5 through 6, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were baptized by John the Baptist. I think that's a bit of hyperbole there. I exclude any sort of exceptions. And even Matthew himself uses the word all in this way in Matthew 4.24. Well, he did in Matthew 3. He does it elsewhere in Matthew 4.24. They brought to Jesus all the sick. Well, that doesn't mean all in an absolute way without exclusion. So we see that the use of the—even Paul uses the word all in a non-absolute way in Romans 3.10 through 12 when he's quoting Psalm 14.2 through 3. So that the word all doesn't preclude exceptions, Father. It at least allows for the possibility— that Mary could be an exception to Paul's statement, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the second way we can meet that challenge, Father, is that Paul here in Romans 3.23 is talking about personal sin, right? And we know there are exceptions to the statement, all have sin, when we're talking about personal sin. For example, unborn babies, they can't sin. And even Paul recognizes the womb, not having any sin, in Romans 9.11. So, even Paul himself understands that there can be exceptions to his statement, all have sinned. And as Catholics, we're just simply saying, <clears throat> Mary is one of those exceptions. And of course, we would have to provide evidence for that, but just because Paul says all have sinned, that in no way excludes Mary uh, that in no way, in, excuse me, that in no way necessarily means that Mary must be included in that statement, because there can be exceptions. And finally, in the book, I point out that Paul, what Paul is getting at here, all have sinned, Father, is he's referring to sin being characteristic of both Jews and Gentiles. The whole context is all about salvation being attained, obtained apart from the law of Moses. He's all, it, it's all about distinguishing, um, Paul is trying to emphasize that there is no anymore between Gentile. All have sinned, and both Jews and Gentiles can receive salvation through faith in Christ by the grace of God. And that's the point of Paul's statement, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He is in no way intending to say or implying Mary's not immaculately conceived. Mary did not remain free from personal sin throughout her life. So this passage in no way shows that our belief about Mary's sinlessness contradicts God's word. One of the objections that you take up to Mary in meeting the Protestant challenge uh, is probably one that is near to any Protestant convert's heart to Catholicism because they know the scriptures very well. They've uh, right. read the Bible, they've studied it extensively, they've gone to Bible study, and of course, 
uh, in Mark 3, 31 to 35, or Mark 6, 1 through 6, and the other equivalents in the Synoptic Gospels, it talks about the brothers and sisters of the Lord, and that, you know, there they, there they were approaching yeah. the house. They want to talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, well, who are my mother and brothers except those who do the will of God? Or in Mark 6, 1 through 6, it's, you know, how can this man be doing all of this? We Don't we know his mother? Are not his brothers uh, here with us? And they name them by name. So how might we respond to the brothers and sisters of the Lord? Jerome, of course, points out that the word Adelphos could mean a, a, a kinsperson or cousin, but yeah. it seems modern scholarship today kind of wants to dismiss that uh, rendering away. But um, how might we respond in this modern era? Yeah, Father, that's that's excellent. In fact, you can make the challenge even stronger by pointing to examples like Matthew thirteen fifty five, where, as you mentioned, they list the so-called brothers of the Lord, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, or Judas. And I like to appeal to a variety of reasons, as we'll see in a few moments. But as you point out, Jerome points out that the term Adelphos in Greek can have or does have a range, a wide range of meaning uh, that extends beyond the boundaries of biological brotherhood, right? And a classic example of this, Father, you can't get around this, is in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 14, verses 14 and 16. In the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Hebrew writings, the Hebrew scriptures, Lot is referred to as Abraham's Adelphos, as Abraham's brother, <laughs> but yet we know Lot is Abraham's nephew. So that's one classic example where Adelphos, the Greek word for brother, can be used in a way that doesn't signify biological brotherhood, but can be used for some sort of kinship, right? Uh, even in the New Testament, it's it has a wide range of meaning, even beyond blood relationships. So it's 9.17, Ananias calls Saul, Brother Saul. So we see it can be applied as far as spiritual brotherhood or spiritual relationship. And the point there, Father, is that because Adelphosis has a wide range of meaning in Scripture, a Protestant cannot point to a, the use of the word brothers in relation to James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, as evidence for Jesus having biological brothers, you see. So that's what we're doing in meeting this Protestant challenge. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Just because the Scripture says these are brothers of Jesus, it doesn't necessarily follow from that that they are biological brothers, because they could very well, uh, the term could very well be used in a wider sense, connoting some other type of relationship. So the question is, <clears throat> what's the correct meaning? Like, which meaning should we t pitch our tent in, right? And with regard using the term Adelphoi, which is the plural for brothers of Jesus. Well, I think we can look to, um, to, to other pieces of evidence in sacred scripture to see that these brothers of Jesus are not biological brothers. I think we have good evidence, Father, that we know for a fact that James and Joseph are not biological brothers. Check this out. In Matthew 27, 56, Matthew... The same author who lists the brothers of the Lord in Matthew 13, 55, Matthew is listing the women at the foot of the cross, and he identifies one of the women as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. 
Now, it's reasonable to conclude, Father, that this, these two men are the same James and Joseph that Matthew lists in Matthew 13, 55 as brothers of the Lord, because he doesn't make any sort of qualification as these are some other James, some other different from the two he listed in Matthew 13. But what he's doing here in Matthew 27, 56, Father, is he's identifying this Mary, he's trying to identify this Mary in distinction from other Marys, and this Mary is the mother of these two guys, James and Joseph. Now, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, because everywhere else in Scripture, Father, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is always identified as such by virtue of her relationship to Jesus, and it's un it's unthinkable that Matthew would identify this Mary in Matthew 27 with James and Joseph when he could have identified her with Jesus. So what this tells us, Father, is that James and Joseph, two of the four quote-unquote brothers of the Lord, are sons of another Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so in light of that context, in light of that 1355, and we ask the question, okay, well, how is Matthew using the term brother here in relation to these four men called the brothers of the Lord? Well, given that that evidence from Matthew 2756, he must be using it in the in the wider sense, not in the restrictive sense of these men being biological brothers of Jesus, but having some sort of other kind of relationship with Jesus, perhaps cousins. And that's one of the things when we talk about the crucifixion, for example, and when we go to John's gospel, John entrusts Mary uh, Ooh, to the yeah. care of the beloved disciple. And so uh, many, you know, Mariologists will kind of infer the fact that, well, if if Jesus had other brothers and sisters, they would have taken care of Mary, his mother, uh, right. their mother. But if he's giving Mary to the care of someone else, it means that she has no one else, that she's a widow. Her only son is dying. And, and even the widow of Nain, it's often pointed out that, well, maybe Jesus showed compassion towards that widow because he saw in her his mother and that mm. she was going to experience and undergo the same sorrow when he would die. And so he raises yeah. that man to life uh, right. again. What? Well, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, Father, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. That is a powerful line of evidence to suggest from Scripture that Mary did not have other children besides Jesus. It's Jesus' act of giving his mother over to John's care that suggests he had no other brothers. And this, Father, this is actually an argument that we find all the way back in the 4th century. St. Athanasius used it, as well as St. Hilary of Poitiers, because it belonged, in the Jewish custom, it belonged to—they understood the fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother— as entailing or involving children care it's in old age and we see this clearly in mark 7 when jesus is condemning the pharisaical tradition of men that rejected the fourth commandment right remember the korban tradition and we see clearly that jesus is all about children taking care of their parents in old age in order to uphold the fourth commandment and any sort of activity that would undercut that jesus hammers it right he he condemns it so jesus is all about this idea of children taking care of their parents so for jesus to entrust mary to an outsider like john if he had biological brothers 
that would be uh, a, a superb insult to his biological brothers, implying that, well, they're not good enough to take care of mama and they don't have the financial means to take care of mom, right? And Je that would be unthinkable in Jesus's mind because he wants, he knows the fourth commandment involves children have to be, uh, he would definitely be upholding God's law, right? If he had biological brothers, in order to uphold God's law, he would have to entrust Mary to those biological brothers. But because he entrusts Mary to John, an outsider, that's a strong indication that he did not have biological brothers to entrust Mary to, and to put Mary into their care. Why is it so important for us as Catholics to continually argue for and maintain the fact that Mary remained a virgin all throughout her life? Mm. Of course, before, yeah. during, and after. It, you have a question about the until word in, in the scriptures that oh, yeah. until yeah. she gave birth to her firstborn son. And uh, so why is it important for us to, to maintain the perpetual virginity of Mary after the fact? Yeah, so just very quickly, just to sort of punch about until some Protestants will say, well, after that period of time before Jesus' birth, uh, then there was a change in circumstances where Mary and Joseph had sexual relations and children came forth. But as I point out in the book, Matthew is using the word until only to refer to that select period of time before Jesus' birth without any implication of change after the fact. And I give a plethora of examples where that word until is used in that sense in the Bible in order to meet that challenge that Matthew 125 does not prove our Catholic belief in Mary as a perpetual virgin to be false. Now, to your question specifically, why do we need to uphold and defend Mary's perpetual virginity? What's the importance of it? Well, I think ultimately, Father, well, I mean, first of all, because it's true, and it's a part of sacred tradition, and we want to defend truth and what's revealed to us and what's a part of our Christian heritage. But secondly, I think it's, it, all, it's for the sake of preserving the dignity and the sanctity of Jesus Christ as the God-man, to suggest that Mary's womb would be the house of other lesser beings, right? Sure. To, to, you know, other ordinary human beings uh, as biological brothers would take away from the dignity of Christ. I mean, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament and the principle that would God consecrates and sets apart for himself, you do not use for ordinary things, right? The Ark of the Covenant is the prime example of that. You That is set apart for a specific role in, in specific dignity and sanctity, and sinful man cannot even touch it, lest he die, as we see in 2 Samuel 6, right? And so we're talking about Mary, the new Ark of the Covenant, that's the vessel of not just those types of uh, Jesus, but Jesus himself, not just a type of the high priest, but the high priest, not just the, the word of the word of God made flesh, not just from heaven of old, but the bread of heaven, Jesus himself. And so to suggest that Mary had other children would, would, would imply that Jesus was not that extraordinary. <laughs> but what we as Catholics want to say is, no, Jesus is so holy because he's God, and God made flesh, that he sanctifies the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 
And as Ezekiel 30, I think it's Ezekiel 36, talking about the gate of the temple of Jerusalem being closed once the Lord passes through it, right? Uh, the early church fathers saw that as sort of a hint to the Virgin Mary being the gate through which God made man passes, but is closed after he passes through. Uh, because it is sanctified. It's the, it was the Lord's dwelling place, and it cannot be used for ordinary things. Well, you've really helped us uh, to open up the scriptures, to see the Blessed Mother in the pages of sacred scripture, to really take on uh, the Protestant challenges that we face in conversation. They happen, yeah. you know, they happen in the workplace. They happen, you know, among our friends when we're just maybe out socializing that maybe if they know we're Catholic, they might bring up something about the Catholic faith. And so really the way that you use scripture and help us to have a greater knowledge uh, on so many different topics. So Mary is just one topic that you cover and meeting the Protestant challenge. Others include church yeah. hierarchy and scripture and tradition, salvation, right. um, all the sacraments and the saints and so many other topics that really encourage people to, to get your book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, uh, how to answer 50 biblical questions to Catholic beliefs, because really uh, they'll have the language to be able to respond. Your depth of knowledge of scripture uh, really will help so many of us, I think. Yeah, we got to learn to talk the lingo, right, Father? I mean, you go to Japan, you're going to talk Japanese. You go to China, you're going to talk Chinese. You have to talk German. You, you talk to Protestants, you're going to have to learn that biblical language because that's the language they speak. Of course, it's our language as well as Catholics because the, the Bible comes from the Catholic Church. But in order for the sake of evangelizing our Protestant brothers and sisters, we got to learn to talk the lingo. And that is weaving our way through sacred scripture in order to show them that our beliefs do not contradict or nullify the Word of God, but they actually harmonize and cohere with it. And that's the ultimate purpose of the book, to help Catholics realize that, and in conversation with our Protestant brothers and sisters, to help them realize it as well. Well, that's that's all wonderful things that you've given us to think about and to read about, especially in your book. Just real quick, I always like to build a Marian profile with the guest just to show how the guest loves Mary and uh, and to show that all Marian devotion isn't cookie cutter. It's not the same, that everybody's Amen. devotion is a bit different. So I just have a, a series of quick rapid fire questions for you. Um, when it comes to the titles okay, of Mary. Okay, far away. Uh, when it comes to the titles of Mary, there are so many. She's a woman of many names. And so what's your favorite yeah. title of the Blessed Mother? Well, in my relationship with our Blessed Mother, I often have at the forefront of my mind her queenship, that she is queen of heaven and earth. But necessarily involved in that queenship is that she is our mother. She is our spiritual mother. We're told in Revelations uh, twelve seventeen that the woman clothed with the son who is Mary has spiritual children. Her offspring are those who keep the commandments of her son, Jesus. So when I relate to Mary, I relate to her as my queen, but also as my queen mother. She is mama, and I'm asking for mama's help all the time. How about a favorite sacramental? Some people wear sacramentals. They might carry something with them. Yeah, I you know, I often will take my rosary in my hand, is to have the rosary there as a reminder of Mary's presence. Um, I used to be a devotee of the scap of the brown scapular and wearing the brown scapular. However, I will admit that the scapular I had, I lost, and I have yet to get another one, but it's time to get another one. Okay. <laughs> I've been slacking at that. <laughs> 
And uh, there are lots of different prayers to Mary. Of course, as you study the scriptures and know the scriptures so well, the Hail Mary comes to us, the first part, the angelic salutation, the greeting of Elizabeth. But what's your favorite Marian prayer? Yeah, that's a great question. I do really like the Hail Holy Queen. I mean, I guess that ties into the way in which I relate to Mary as my queen mother, as our queen mother. I suppose that the Hail Holy Queen prayer would be one of my favorites because I relate to her as my queen. I feel as if I'm coming before her as her spiritual son. I'm down and giving my life to my queen and saying, I'm at your service ultimately to serve her son, Jesus Christ. You know, we could have talked a little bit about the rosary and maybe responding to the rosary as babbling like the pagans do, but but we didn't cover that, and that's all right. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people think the rosary is repetitious or monotonous. They maybe can't engage yeah. the meditation. Do you have any tip that has helped you pray the rosary and meditate better? Well, I've often found that uh, using sacred scripture— in praying the rosary, I mean, obviously, if you're driving and you're praying the rosary, you can't do that. So maybe you need a sort of a scriptural rosary CD or app or something to where you can listen to it. But I have found that when praying the rosary along with scriptural meditation, that definitely helps and allows for the prayer of the rosary to be more fruitful, at least, you know, in this sort of this conscious, active way of meditation. Mary appears in the pages of sacred scripture. We meet her in many different ways. There are many prophecies about her in the Old Testament. What's your favorite Marian Bible passage or reference? Uh, yeah, so I, I really like Genesis 3.15. If we're talking about prophecy here, where you have the Proto-Evangelium, where God uh, promises to set enmity between Satan and the woman, right? And that woman is not only free from the dominion of Satan, not not a member, not one of his seed, not of his seed, right? And the woman being a title of a pre-fall condition, because the first woman was called woman several times before she fell and didn't receive her name Eve until after the fall. So this prophetical woman is the woman is like the woman before the fall. So we have a prophecy of Mary not only being the mother of the Messiah, but Mary being like the first woman created of original sin. But unlike the first woman, she would be a woman who does not fall into sin and subject herself to the dominion of Satan. So that's kind of my favorite. The Blessed Mother has appeared all over the world at many different places. Uh, maybe you've been a pilgrim to one of them. A favorite Marian apparition? Our Lady of Guadalupe, I'd have to say, since I'm born on her feast day, okay. December 12th. Yeah, And uh, there are lots of different Marian shrines. Of course, sometimes we just automatically associate a Marian shrine with an apparition, but there are shrines to titles of Mary uh, all throughout our country and the world. And is there a Marian shrine besides an apparition that you visited that, you've, that you're fond of? Uh, yes. Uh, well... I mean, to be honest with you, I haven't I haven't been blessed in my journey yet to be able to go to any of the shrines. Uh, the only shrine, I guess you could say, is the Shrine of the Immaculate, you know, Conception in Washington, oh, sure. uh, D.C. I have been once. I was a teenager going. Actually, we were heading to Rome for World Youth Day, and we stopped there on our way. That was part of our pilgrimage. So I have been there, and that's the only move. So I guess I'm going to have to say that one. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I'm sure that you're pretty well read uh, in the work that you do. And there are lots of books about the Blessed Mother that are out there uh, written by Mm -hmm. so many different people. What's a Marian book you'd recommend? I'm going to have to go with my boss's book. Uh, Tim Staples' book, Behold Behold Your Mother, and it's sort of an exhaustive treatment of the biblical and historical basis for uh, all of our Marian beliefs. Well, I can definitely second that. It is a very good book. And uh, maybe just lastly, when we go to church on some of those holy days, uh, celebrating and honoring the Blessed Virgin, we'll sing Marian hymns. Is there a Marian hymn that you often might wish is sung at those masses or that you find that you might whistle afterwards? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I really, I really like this. I guess I'm going to have to say the Salve Regina. I'm going to go with that one. Sure. The, the chant version probably. And yeah, uh, I really do enjoy the chant version. Correct. And it goes back to your favorite prayer uh, with being Amen the Holy Queen. Well, thank you so much, Carlo, for joining uh, me on How They Love Mary to talk about your book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. If people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, well, they can follow my work at Catholic.com, but because there's so much output there and what we do here at Catholic Answers, I try to host all of my work at one location at CarloBroussard.com. So that would be a way they can follow me. And thanks again for being with me and talking You're about welcome. the Blessed Mother. I'd also Amen. like to offer a special thanks to our guest, uh, or to our guest, but also to Anna Nuzo for her music that opened our podcast today. You've been listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary. I hope it has either been the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. You can follow me, Father Edward Looney, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at FR Edward Looney. If you've found this show to be helpful, please leave a review so that others might find it too. Until next week, let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.